0: Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 118 We looked at 33 different countries. We did country case studies. We looked at corruption. We looked at money laundering, trade-based money laundering. We looked at terrorism financing. We looked at underlying crimes that generate those proceeds. We looked at things like beneficial ownership.
1: Hello, and welcome to Trade Finance Talks. My name is Brian Kano, Assistant Editor at TFG. Today, we will be exploring the world of trade-based money laundering, TBML a form of financial crime that has been growing in sophistication and scale. TBML is the process of disguising the proceeds of crime and transferring them across borders through the use of trade transactions. It involves manipulating the price, quantity, or quality of goods or services in an international trade transaction to move illicit funds undetected. One of the main challenges in combating TBML is its link to illicit financial flows. These flows represent a significant threat to the global financial system, undermining economic growth and fueling corruption and criminal activity. In this podcast, we will be examining the different techniques used in TBML, the main trade flows, and countries most vulnerable to this type of financial crime. To help us better understand this topic, I am happy to introduce Chenny Mivrelis, Director of Illicit Trade Program at Global Financial Integrity. Channing, welcome to Trade Finance Talks.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So I guess we'll start off, even though I give a brief introduction. Can you describe transnational crime and what the link is to illicit financial flows?
0: Transnational crime, it's not technically, there's not like a universal definition. There is a UN convention on transnational organized crime, and they intentionally didn't define it just so that there's broader applicability of this convention. is called UNTALK, is the shortened version of it. They want to leave it kind of broad so that there's, you know, there's always new, as you've said, new and emerging types of crimes globally, regionally, locally. And so they want to leave it a bit broad. But there is a official definition for organized criminal group. So kind of from there, we can extrapolate what transnational crime is or transnational organized crime. So an organized criminal group is considered a group of three or more persons that was not randomly formed. So there is intent here, not, you know, it's not for people that sh- happen to show up. All throughout the same bank at the same time or something. It's been existing for a period of time. They're acting in concert with the aim of committing at least one crime punishable by at least four years incarceration. And so that's kind of the important thing here. This isn't petty crimes. There is like a precedent or for the seriousness of the crime. And then they're committing these crimes in order to obtain directly or indirectly a financial or other material benefit. So from that, you can kind of think about transnational organized crime as any kind of crime that doesn't necessarily have to involve a group of people, but obviously there's a transnational nature of this activity. I think the most commonly cited are things like narcotics trafficking, human trafficking, arms trafficking. You have a host of environmental crimes like wildlife trafficking, illegal logging, mining, fishing. There's a whole host of different crimes. What's the link to illicit financial flows? So Global Financial Integrity, which is a Washington, D.C.-based think tank, we defined IFFs. They're illegal funds that are moved from one country to another. And this illegality stems from the funds being illegally earned, transferred, or utilized. So that illegal earned would be the proceeds of a crime, the proceeds of narcotic trafficking. Illegally transferred would be something like customs fraud or using TBML to do that. Or it could be something like capital flight that is evading um, currency controls using illegal methods. Or illegally utilized would be like terrorism financing. Whenever we're talking about crime, there's going to be criminal proceeds that are generated. With those, it's always the age old problem of how do you make them clean? How do you launder the money? And so that's how, you know, we're kind of getting into the topic of TBML here, and particularly when we're talking about the transnational crime angle of this having a method of laundering the funds that involves international trade can be very beneficial.
1: What are the main methods that you see with TBML?
0: I separate it into document-based versus non-document-based. So document-based is most commonly done through trade misinvoicing. It's a fancy way of saying customs fraud. And we define trade misinvoicing as the intentional manipulation of the value of a trade transaction by manipulating or falsifying among other things the price Quality or country of origin of a good, uh, our good, or could be a service as well, but we focus just on goods. Individuals it allows groups to shift money into or out of a country. It basically gives them a reason or evidence proof to show why they are sending additional funds. So they can overvalue or undervalue a trade transaction. You can overvalue or undervalue an import or export. And doing so, depending on the way you do it, can allow you to shift money out of the country. The idea is that... Let's say you're you're settling the payment. If you're importing something and you need to send a payment to the exporter to settle the transaction, you can use this falsified documentation to as evidence or as a reason why you're sending additional funds out of the country. However, the financial institution doesn't really know that you're sending additional funds. They think you're sending the accurate amount of money. There's a lot that's going on there. It can be really difficult to detect. But for me, even what's even more difficult is that kind of the non-document-based. Trade-based money laundering is how I think about it. And the most common example is something called the Black Market Peso Exchange or BMPE. The BMP has its roots back several decades ago in Colombia. However, I should say this isn't some kind of model that's exclusive to Colombia. I think this is where law enforcement, financial institutions, everybody caught on to this and it's why it's named that. This is not exclusive to Colombia or to narcotics trafficking. But it came about when the government had put controls on foreign currency exchange. People, businessmen who were looking to get access to US dollars, it was quite expensive going through the government, so they looked to peso brokers, to informal methods of accessing US currency. And what it does is it again, it helps settle this age-old problem of how do you repatriate the proceeds of crime from one country to the other? So sticking with this, this example of Colombia, let's say you have narcotics, you have cocaine, it goes to the U.S., it gets sold in the U.S., and you end up with U.S. cash. So how do you get that cash back to Colombia, one, without being detected, and two, getting it back into pesos? How the BMPE works, you have a couple of options there, but essentially the... Cartel could, if they want, just themselves take that cash proceeds and buy any legitimate trade item. In the US, there were cases maybe eight, 10 years ago that were involving the LA Fashion District where they were taking the cash proceeds and just buying clothes, other garments. And then they export those down to Colombia. And when those goods are sold, they've basically liquidated the goods. They, They now have access to those proceeds. So the challenge here is you're not sending a wire transfer, the value of those criminal proceeds are being moved in the commodity itself. So you both move them without touching the formal financial system in the sense of, of that trade transaction, and then you're able to convert them back to pesos once they're sold in Colombia. So you could do that directly. A lot of times what happens is they might use what's known as a peso broker. The peso broker themselves, they're essentially buying those narcotics proceeds off of the cartel at a, a certain percentage. So what we've seen before is maybe like a 10 to 15 percent commission for, you know, you're laundering $500,000, I'm going to charge you a 10 to 15% commission for doing this, you're accepting the risk of, of taking this cash, they take the cash on, they engage into a contract, they take the cash, they can use a variety of different methods to get it into the formal financial system, they could send a bunch of individual called smurfing, they can send a bunch of different individuals with varying amounts of cash to make deposits, they can use cash intensive business to, to launder the money through. But at the same time, they are then making similar amounts of money available to the cartel, or they can use those proceeds to purchase trade goods and send them back again, so we're saying, let's stick with the Colombia example, back to Colombia, where they're sold, either those proceeds are taken back by the cartel. What we're seeing now with this, I kind of think of this as a two-party trade transaction or two-country trade transaction. You have, in this example, you have the US and Colombia. The challenge that we've been seeing lately is the involvement of Chinese money laundering organizations. A lot of times in the past, cartels have laundered in-house or if they do use an external money launderer in the past, they've used Colombians, they've used Lebanese, they've used different individuals or different networks of individuals to do this. And like I said, you know maybe they're charging a 10 or 15% commission on this. They're in this for the profit they earn from laundering this money. With the involvement of Chinese money laundering organizations, it gets a little bit more complicated. They're getting involved because they want access to the US dollars. China has pretty strict currency controls that really limit the amount of foreign capital that individuals or businesses can gain access to. So for example, individuals have a limit up to $50,000 of foreign exchange they can engage in in each year, if they want to exceed that, they need to find an informal method of accessing that money. Now, I should add that just because they're using this informal method does not necessarily mean that the source of this money is illegal. They could be trying to purchase a home in the U.S., or they could try to be paying their kids college tuition, which I think we know these days can be wicked expensive. They could be investing in a business, you know, somewhere else. This is all in the context of the US. So it's not necessarily illegal in terms of the source of the funds they're trying to move. However, this gets into this illegally transferred aspect of of illicit financial flows, the manner that they're transferring it is illegal because it's violating Chinese law. What happens is, is these Chinese money laundering organizations, they've now come onto the scene. They're able to purchase these narcotics proceeds for maybe only up to 6%. There's been some instances where they don't even charge a commission at all. So they're really able to undercut other professional money laundering networks, other kind of professional peso brokers out there. And what they're doing is they're kind of making this now, I consider it a three-party transaction. So normally you would have those narcotics proceeds in the U.S. used to purchase U.S. goods that are then shipped down to Colombia and sold. What's happening now is in the U.S., those narcotics proceeds in U.S. dollars are made available to a Chinese national, either in the U.S. or abroad. It's just a Chinese national who wants access to U.S. dollars. In exchange, that Chinese national, in what we call a mirror exchange or a mirror transaction, at the same time that those U.S. dollars are made available to them, in China, the Chinese national will transfer an agreed upon amount of to from their Chinese bank account to the Chinese money laundering organization's bank account. And then from there, the Chinese money laundering organization can either make those proceeds available to the Colombian cartel so that they can buy, China is a huge export country, they can buy goods there that are then exported down to Colombia and sold. Again, you've liquidated the goods, you now have Colombian pesos, everything's been washed clean. And it's by and large has been, number one, it hasn't touched the US financial system. By and large, it hasn't really touched any financial system except in China. Everything's been moved through trade. So it's extremely difficult to track, to find out what's going on. And so it's been very challenging for law enforcement, for policymakers to address this and I think this is in large part to the fact that so much of our AML-CFT framework that's out there globally is really focused on financial institutions. And this backdoor of trade, there's a great quote by a TDML trade misinvoicing expert named John Zidanowitz, who said, we've focused everything on the front of this at financial institutions. However, we've left the back door open when it comes to trade. We're really exposed there in terms of, you know, how we have AML-CFT control." on this. And I think that gets to the issue of what can be done in terms of trade finance and other financial institutions, other stakeholders that are involved in trade where there could be issues with money laundering.
1: Thank you so much for that incredibly detailed explanation. That was incredible. You did mention you know, like the LA clothes industry and also non-illegal trade ways that people get around the money laundering rules. Could you also mention, is there a specific area, you no, know, say agriculture or general the clothing industry, um, are, are there general trade flows that are more vulnerable to these issues? And also for countries, I know we mentioned Colombia here with the, with the uh, black market peso exchange. Could you touch on industries and countries that are particularly vulnerable to this issue?
0: Not to sound dire, but it can be anything, any commodity that you can think of. They've done in the US, and this is several years ago, they actually did geographical targeting orders said our financial intelligence unit here in the U.S., did put out these specialized orders to help focus. It had additional reporting requirements for certain industries or sectors, let's say. So they had one in the Los Angeles area on those companies involved with garments, involved with fashion, to have increased reporting on this in terms of particularly like cash transactions. There was also one in Miami in terms of electronics, but it can be used with anything. I mean, definitely the gold trade is is one that can be Easily used and abused. That's very challenging. And that, you know, the gold trade is a challenge in general, just in terms of potential illegal origins, gold laundering, things like that. But really, any commodity can be used. We do hear a lot about maybe like used cars sometimes. But having done a, a report a couple of years ago, looking at financial crime in Latin America and the Caribbean, it can be anything. It could be cattle. It could be, I think we were talking to somebody in Jamaica, and they said hair extensions. I mean, just anything you can think of that those people involved in this trade transaction know that they can sell and probably sell easily. They'll use it. One of the challenges here is in one of the impacts that's not often seen is it does impact those legitimate businesses because a lot of times the intent of this is to get the product into this source country and sell it to liquidate the funds. They might sell it or they maybe will sell it at below market value so that they can get to the funds quicker. They can just sell it cheap, get rid of it, get access to their funds. They also can reinvest some of those proceeds into a business that otherwise might not be successful. And, you know, let's say like a front company. So it can be very difficult for legitimate businesses to compete with some of these illicit activities. So that's something to consider. Which countries are most vulnerable? Again, it's, it's, All of them. Obviously, I've mentioned China. I mean, any country that has large amounts of trade, it's very challenging. I mean, one thing to think about is just the sheer volume of trade out there and the ability of customs departments to screen every transaction. There's always this fine balance between trade facilitation, keeping business flowing and balancing that out with this combating um, illicit activity, ensuring national security. There's always this fine balance going on. And so it can be very difficult to be able to go through all of these transactions and evaluate them for potential illicit activity. You know, you can do for like this document base that I'm talking about, about trade misinvoicing, potentially they've undervalued the value of, let's say they've exported cell phones from the United States to Colombia, and they've undervalued them. They said, I've exported a hundred cell phones and they're worth, I don't know, a thousand dollars. But when you get down to Columbia and you sell them, obviously they're going to sell them for more. So that value of those cell phones is what's moving down there. And once it's sold, let's say they sell them for, I don't know, $10,000. That's how the value is moved, how the money is generated. And so they've manipulated the trade documentation in order to say that the cell phones are less valuable than they are. If you're able to screen the trade transaction and pick up that they've undervalued these cell phones, then you can maybe detect it. But when we're talking about using the Codex Proceeds to purchase the goods themselves... And then exporting them, there's no need to manipulate the custom declaration or the invoice or the bill of lading because you've already, you're moving those goods are the representation of the criminal proceeds. So you don't need to manipulate the documentation at all. I don't have a perfect answer for you, but I think I will say China is is definitely a concern just with the large value um, and volume of the trade that's occurring, imports and exports there. We released a paper last year looking at China's involvement. And when I say China, I kind of China at large includes the government and the CCP, but also includes China kind of as a host country for illicit activity, involves Chinese nationals, Chinese criminal networks, all that kind of stuff. So China's involvement in transnational crime and illicit financial flows. There is a big role to be played there. When you think about just the volume of goods coming in and out of the country, it's very easy to disguise that, any kind of illicit activity that's going on there.
1: It's amazing to hear that some of these uh, commodities you mentioned, hair extensions or cattle can be used for money laundering. I don't think many people would be expecting that, but that shows the uh, the depth of the problem here. These are amazing examples of what could be used. And I'd love if you extrapolate a bit more could you give a, like a concrete case study that you have seen? I'm sure as your role as director, you have endless case studies, but I'd be curious if you could share one of them.
0: I'm going to share one that we highlighted in our 2021 report, Financial Crime in Latin America and the Caribbean. I highly recommend this report if you're at all interested in the region. We looked at 33 different countries. We did country case studies. We looked at corruption. We looked at money laundering, trade-based money laundering. We looked at terrorism financing. We looked at underlying crimes that generate those proceeds. We looked at things like beneficial ownership. We looked at information exchange. It's extremely comprehensive. It's about 300 pages long we did over 250 expert interviews for this. So I highly recommend this report from Global Financial Integrity. But in this report, we did provide a case study on the black market peso exchange. And I'll kind of just run through this with you all to give you an idea of how this worked. So in 2019, the United States dismantled a black money peso exchange or BMPE network. It was run by money brokers operating between Colombia and the United States. Money brokers, they're also known as peso brokers. They're acting as intermediaries between individuals, businesses, and criminal organizations. So they're exchanging one currency for another. Typically, they conduct business between different jurisdictions, and they may operate formally or informally. So from about mid-2018 into 2019, the U.S. Department of Justice alleged that there were six money brokers that were based in Colombia, and they facilitated the laundering and uh, repatriation of narcotics proceeds, specifically cash from the US back to Colombia, their clients that is narco traffickers would contact the money brokers to let them know that they had cash in the United States that needed to be laundered in a nod to the professionalization of this scheme, the brokers would create contracts for their clients whereby they detailed how the U.S. currency would be picked up, that a roughly equivalent value of Colombian pesos would be delivered, and what the commission was to be received by the brokers. So once the contract is is signed, the brokers would then arrange for the pickup of the cash in the U.S. using a network of couriers that are located across the country. The courier would pick up the cash They would then deposit the cash into a particular U.S. bank account. And you're probably at this point saying, how is this not detected? Because narcotics proceeds were talking a lot about a lot of money. I'll flag here that the couriers in this case were either undercover agents posing as money launderers or confidential sources that were working with the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. And the bank account that they were depositing the funds into was controlled by the DEA. The DEA is able to, and, and other U.S. law enforcement agencies, They are able to, they have a special exemption to engage in money laundering. It sounds a little funny. They can't engage in narcotic sales, but they're able to act as money launderers in order to gain a better reference of who the players are, how this is operating, how this money laundering system is operating, what's happening within the product side of things. This explains how the cash was able to be deposited without attracting red flags from the financial institution. And this I'll highlight is maybe that one point where there is a chance of potentially detecting the trade-based money laundering when you have a business that is depositing large amounts of cash that is outside their normal behavior. And this is where customer due diligence This is where know your customer, this kind of work that the financial institution has done to establish a customer profile really comes into play. Let's take this example of stepping aside from this case study. Let's take this example of the garment district in LA. If you have a company that sells t-shirts and all of a sudden they're coming in depositing tens of thousands of dollars in cash and they're saying this is from people buying our product, that's a red flag for you as a financial institution. Okay, back to the case study. So you have the couriers depositing them into this D. DEA bank account, the bank account was actually also receiving wire transfers of illicit proceeds from other countries, including Mexico. So there's a lot of activity going on and it's being facilitated. It's happening because the DEA is allowing it to happen so that they can figure out this network that's going on. So the other primary participant in this network was an individual named Amit Agarwal. He was an Indian national who owned and operated a company called Best Electronics USA. It was a consumer electronics wholesaler in New Jersey. So the the proceeds that had been deposited into this bank account were then transferred to the Best Electronics USA's bank account. And once this individual, Agarwal, had received the funds and he was notified that the money had been transferred to his business account, he would then export electronic goods of roughly the equivalent value to Colombian electronic suppliers. He would use a code name on the commercial invoice that the recipient knew it was connected to a transaction conducted by the corresponding money broker so that they can link all these transactions together. Previously, in this instance, he had been notified by these couriers on various occasions in these couriers, these individuals being DEA agents, that the funds were constituted narcotics proceeds, he had agreed to accept the money in payment for these orders. So this was knowing there's no willful blindness here in this situation. He's exported the goods to Colombia. The Colombian's electronics suppliers would then, rather than remitting payment directly to the exporter, which you would normally do in a trade transaction, they would pay that appropriate amount of value in Colombian pesos, to those peso brokers in Colombia. They receive the electronics and instead of paying Agrawal as the exporter, they pay the Colombian peso brokers. And then the money brokers would then deliver these funds to the clients, their traffickers in Colombia, and they would take out the commission for themselves and for the couriers. This was adjudicated as of May 2021, when this report was released, Agarwal had pled guilty to conspiring to operate an unlicensed money transmission business, and he was awaiting sentencing. The scheme really shows how traffickers in Colombia can access the proceeds from drug sales in the U.S. without the need to engage in bulk cash smuggling or international bank transfers, as well as to convert the money from US dollars to Colombian pesos.
1: That's amazing. I know myself personally, I had an idea in in theory that these things happen, but to hear an actual example of what's going on right underneath our nose, that that is fascinating. I really appreciate you, you explaining that to us. Off of that point, that seems so difficult to manage on a large scale, you know, across all countries. What would your key messages to governments or policymakers and stakeholders about how we address this trade-based money laundering, and is there a, a potential use for technology in this? And what can we actually do?
0: Sure, I think first and foremost, GFI definitely advocates that trade and custom records should be free and available to the public. It depends on each country if how they release or if they release their trade and, and custom records. You can go to the United Nations Comtrade database the trades is short for commercial trade database. You can go there and get aggregated trade information in terms of, you know, if you're looking at a specific commodity, the value and volume of that good as it's traded between two country partners or between a particular country and the rest of the world for a particular year. But this is kind of a blunt tool. You aren't able to see a lot of fine detail for it. We also use data from a source, it's an S from S&P, Global Market Intelligence. It's called um, Pangeva. With this, I can see actual individual trade transactions and what the price is declaring. But again, this is dependent on what the country releases in terms of the information. So for example, the United States, when it comes to... Aggregated data, they'll give you for the month of October, and we're talking about, let's say, tropical wood that they've imported. They'll tell you the volume of the wood that's been imported from a particular country or globally as a whole. They do or you're able to access individual trade transactions through Pangeva for the U.S. However, the problem is they don't provide the value for those individual trade transactions, whatever the declared value was, just the volume. So you're kind of missing a really key element of that. The challenge with the U.S. trade data as well is that they only provide maritime data. So they're not providing land or air transport. And so that can be really difficult depending on the commodity you're looking at. I mentioned earlier that gold is a very high risk commodity. That's always moved by air. So it's hard to see what's going on. We did a report a couple of years ago looking at illegal gold mining and the illegal gold trade in Colombia, which has a lot of issues with that. It's some sources say the illegal gold mining and the illegal gold trade in Colombia is more valuable than narcotics trafficking these days. Colombia actually has excellent data available on Pangeva, and we've done a considerable amount of work with that. However, as I mentioned, since gold is moved by air, I can trace the shipments out of the country. But when we look at, you know, if they're going to the U.S., I can't really trace them in in terms of comparing the values that have been declared. So what we recommend or what we really urge countries to do is to provide all the trade data publicly for free. That's something, for example, like the EU, their trade data is available for free. The U.S., if you want to get trade data from them, it comes from the Census Bureau. I think we pay anywhere from $4,000 to $8,000 a year to have access to this data or if you want you can go through UN Comtrade but again it's all very aggregated data you don't get down to what i call like the tariff level data of like the 8 9 10 digit hs codes where you really need that level of information if you want to verify a trade transaction so that's one huge thing i'll definitely also point to the need for countries to figure out how to better exchange trade information between themselves preferably on a continual basis or all the time, a dynamic information exchange. An example is that the U.S. has what are known as trade transparency units or TTUs. They were established to exchange trade data between the U.S. and its trade partners on a bilateral basis, as well as to improve the understanding of trade-based money laundering. But one of the major weaknesses in them is that the data is, is not shared continuously. It's rather it's done kind of on a weekly or monthly, quarterly, even biannual or annual basis. So that prevents potential real-time identification of TBML and other fraud threats. We want to see countries, if at all possible, being able to share that trade data so that if I'm in the U.S. and I am looking at an import of Gold from Colombia, and me being in the US, I'm with Customs and Border Protection, I'm with Homeland Security Investigations, I'm able to see, ideally, in an ideal world, I would be able to see from the Colombian side, Colombia has shared their trade records to see what has been declared on the export side. There is a significant amount of information asymmetry when it comes to international trade. And really, the only two people that know what are happening in a trade transaction in its entirety are the importer and exporter a lot of the other players that are involved those that are there in order to monitor the transaction to ensure its integrity, to ensure that there's no illicit activity going on, they're only getting a different piece of the puzzle here and there. And the challenge with this as well is you have that trade side of the transaction, and then you also have the financial side of the transaction. And so those sides aren't always communicating as well. If, you know, If you look kind of on a national perspective, CBP is not having a free flow of information between FinCEN. It can be very, very challenging of what's going on it's all about data. It's all about sharing data. Everybody needs to know what's going on. That's our point of view. Obviously, there's issues with data privacy and protecting the data, other concerns like that. It's a bit simplistic when I say share all the data, but that's something to really think about. Another huge recommendation is to ensure that countries have very strong beneficial ownership legislation and that they have a robust beneficial ownership registry. When we talk about beneficial ownership, we're talking about knowing who the ultimate owner of a business or a company is. Part of the global standard is the standards being set by the Financial Action Task Force. Countries are supposed to collect this information, require companies to report it. For the United States, this will come into effect in January 2024. So the U.S., and particularly FinCEN, has been doing a lot of work to get everything up to speed on this. But a lot of times you have front companies, you have shell companies, you have anonymous companies being used to engage in these trade transactions. And there's zero transparency on who the true owners of these companies are. In the past, people have been able just to list a registered agent or a company director, and you can find that the same individual is the director of 1,500 other companies. It's very meaningless them providing this name. I always say, without transparency, you can't have accountability having access, being able to know who is really in control of these companies is extremely important. We have really push this. I think we also want to talk about, from a country perspective, looking at targeting individuals, entities, and countries that facilitate financial crimes and money laundering, and considering should, can we apply economic and other targeted financial sanctions with respect to individuals or entities engaged in financial crimes? We're thinking about the professionalization of money laundering in these Chinese, money laundering networks, what can be done to systemically deny them access to the financial system and to really take away their strength in this game. Also exploring policies to hold countries available that are failing to sufficiently investigate financial crimes or failing to really be collaborative when it comes to information exchange for financial investigations. So that's something to think about as well. Something we are proposing, and this was included in a recent paper we co-authored with the SAP Global Market Intelligence, as well as the Institute of International Banking Law and Practice, is that the International Maritime Organization should begin to require that any vessels that are registered with them, they need to declare their group owner, and they should also establish a beneficial ownership registry for vessels. This is super important. This is another key to having transparency and accountability when it comes to international trade. And we recommend this really for all other assets as well. So we're talking about aircrafts, we're talking about real estate, art, anything like that, that this information should be available to countries so that they really know what's going on.
1: I think you said earlier that these may be simplistic approaches, but I feel like sometimes simple is the best, especially when you're trying to fight something that is so complex, and that might just be the best option for anyone. I really appreciate you going through your top three or four suggestions for uh, governments and policymakers to fight money laundering. I'd say this was an incredible podcast. I have been fascinated listening to all of these stories. I was mesmerized as you're speaking. So I really appreciate you coming on to Trade Finance Talks, and I hope that we have you on soon again.
0: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to
1: subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com.